Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for the privilege of coming to worship in your name. Thank you that Jesus, you have set us free individually, set us free as a community, set us free to live in the light of your just and righteous reign as King and Lord. Lord, my heart is heavy after hearing, continue to hear more about mass incarceration and this many injustices, often based on race, that have been perpetuated in our country for hundreds of years. And I don't know how to respond, Lord, but I want to be faithful. We want to be people who care about things you care about, who love our neighbor as ourselves, who stand up against evil. So lead us in your way, Lord God, and lead us to care and live as your children, as your light bearers, as faithful servants to you and your people you love and this world you love. Open our ears to hear your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. A special privilege to uh, have someone come up who hasn't preached here before. One of the things that I, I, I really believe in, you may notice this distinct about chapel, is on Tuesdays when we preach Scripture, we have uh, only certain people come. We don't have guests come into this time because I believe deeply that the people who should preach God's Word to us are people who know us, who know our community, and who love you, and who care about you and are walking with you. I want people to preach people who are pastors to this community. So as, as great as it would be to have some famous person come in and preach to us, that's not what we do here because I want pastors to preach to us. And we have someone who's been serving as a graduate assistant for the last almost three years, and he has slowly become a pastor to this community, and many of you know him in that way. And so I'm delighted to uh, have Jake Chipka come up and preach God's Word to us today. He's graduating, going to head to Western Theological Seminary um, and go finish his MDiv there. He got this great scholarship there to, to be a fellow research with a, a wonderful scholar, and uh, that, uh, all kinds of great things, but the very heart of it, Jake loves Jesus, he loves you, and he uh, knows how to open up Scripture so we can hear it. And that's why he's preaching for us today. Let's welcome up Jake Chipka. Thanks, Horace. Appreciate it. Have any of you been stuck in seasons of spiritual dryness? Yeah. You know, those extended moments where you can't seem to feel God? Yeah, I, I've been there too. Back pain has been a significant part of my life for as long as I can remember. From scoliosis as a kid to regular back spasms in high school and college to chronic SI joint dislocation today, back pain has simply been an ever-present reality for me. More often than not, I fail to feel God. And you know what really sucks about that is that when I fail to feel God, I often doubt God's providence. Even worse... When I doubt God, it's usually accompanied by shame. You see, as a lifelong Christian, when I doubt God, others, and myself, I'm encapsulated in shame. Now, what I've come to notice is that doubt inspires a plethora of questions. But I've come to believe that the most helpful question is who does God reveal himself to be in seasons of doubt? We've been exploring the hidden stories of the Old Testament this semester, and today we find ourselves in the era of the kings, specifically King Ahab, during which the great prophet Elijah comes onto the scene. But before we dive into today's passage, a little context might prove helpful. 
like I said, it's at this point when King Ahab is ruling the northern kingdom of Israel. And you see, what was significant about King Ahab is that the text says that he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any other king. You see, King Ahab had married a woman by the name of Jezebel, who was the daughter of a Baalite king. And Jezebel was so fiercely devoted to the idol Baal that she actually committed her life to killing the prophets of Yahweh. But King Ahab didn't only marry into idol worship. He actually participated himself. He worshiped and bowed down to Baal himself as king over Israel. He even went so far as to build a temple for Baal worship in God's land. He did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any king before him. After being introduced to King Ahab and Jezebel, we we sort of just suddenly run into Elijah. And the first thing that Elijah does is walk right up to King Ahab's face, and he prophesies a drought. He said, God's bringing a drought upon your land. And you see, a drought is remarkable because Baal was supposed to be the god of fertility. A drought says, Baal, I'm slapping you in the face. Your power isn't valid. You could say that Elijah's God had flexed on the idol of his day. <laughs> but you see, in the midst of the drought, God still provided for his people, including Elijah. He actually ordained ravens to come down and fly in food to Elijah as he's roaming through the wilderness. There was a God-ordained spring that sprouted up so that he could have water. When the ravens were done doing their thing, Elijah ran into a, a, to a widow who was starving. And God not only provided for the widow, he he used the widow and her single jar of flour to provide for Elijah. Elijah had experienced God's providence time and time again. He came face to face with 450 prophets of Baal and killed them all by himself. This dude was a rock star, full of the spirit of God. Certainly he had no reason to doubt. And it's at this point where we come to today's passage. The text says that Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Elijah was afraid and he got up and fled for his life. He came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and there he left his servant. But Elijah himself went a day's journey further into the wilderness. He came down and sat under a solitary broom tree. Elijah asked that he might die. He cried out, it is enough. O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, get up and eat. Elijah looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him, and said, get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. Elijah got up, ate, and drank, and then he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. At that place he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered and said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. They are seeking my life to take it away. 
He said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for he is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered again, saying, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenants, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. They are seeking my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, son of Japhat, of Abel-Mahalah, as prophet in your place. Whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall kill. Yet I will leave you 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that have not bowed down to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah is a larger than life personality. You could say he, he's the spokesperson, he's the mascot, he's the poster child for God's prophets. I mean, he raised a kid back to life. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah appeared with, jo with Jesus and Moses, for goodness sake. I don't know about you, but it's sometimes pretty hard for a guy like me to relate with a dude like that. But then I read a passage like this, and I can't help but be struck by the similarities of Elijah's doubt in my own. Elijah's doubt was sparked by fear, and so was mine. In Elijah's case, fearful that his life was going to be taken. In my case, fearful of the fact that I was throwing up from back pain at the age of 24. You see, fear so often leads to doubt. It begs the question, what am I fearful of today? And how am I responding? Elijah's immediate response to his fear was to run away. The text says that Elijah took his servant and fled from Jezebel toward the land of Beersheba. But it doesn't stop there. Elijah didn't just run away. He isolated himself. He left his servant in Beersheba and continued a day's journey into the wilderness by himself. Doubt so often isolates us. Now, the text doesn't say why exactly Elijah isolated himself. But I can imagine why I would isolate myself. I would isolate myself because I don't want people to see me in my doubt. And I don't want people to see me in my doubt for at least two reasons. One, I don't actually believe other people are going to help me overcome my doubt. So other people are simply claustrophobic to me. Two, my doubt comes with a significant amount of shame. See, I so often equate doubt with sin. And Elijah seemed to do the same. Elijah cried out to the Lord. He said, he said, for I am no better than my ancestors. But you see, Elijah's ancestors, ancestors had fallen nose deep into idolatry, unashamedly serving and bowing down to Baal. In Elijah's eyes, 
his doubt was in the same category of his ancestors' idolatry. Elijah's doubt, sparked by fear and germinating in shame, cast him into a life of isolation, seemingly distant from God and certainly distant from others. Maybe you can relate with a situation like that. The question remains, who does God reveal himself to be in seasons of doubt? Today's text shows us that God so often reveals himself in the sound of sheer silence. But you see, that frustrates me because I want God to reveal himself in the earthquakes, winds, and fires. I want God to come down and show his power. I want him to remove the source of my fear, to cast out all evil and injustice in the world, to remove illness and untimely death. I want God to rid me of all insecurities for the duration of my life. Simply put, I want God to leave me no reason to doubt. But God reveals himself in the silence. I used to believe that to doubt is to sin. I thought that was the faithful perspective of a Christian. But you see, I've come to realize that such a perspective is not an expression of faith in God, but an expression of faith in clarity. It makes me wonder that if doubt can reveal himself in the silence, if there's actually room for for doubt in fellowship with God. You could consider fellowship with God to be union, union, to be united with God. But then that begs the question, can I be united with God in seasons of doubt? Did you notice that it says that when Elijah heard the silence, he came out before God? What do you imagine he heard? I don't know the answer for that, but when I immerse myself in the entirety of Scripture and I find myself in my own silence, I hear something along the lines of this. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? It's these words of Jesus from the cross. When his circumstances had overwhelmed him and the person of Jesus had come to his end, he found himself doubting God's providence. He found himself in a situation where he felt as if God had forsaken him. He didn't feel God's presence and he cried out in doubt. Makes me wonder. Can I be united with God in seasons of doubt? Yes. Yes, we can. Jesus Christ, in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, didn't always feel full of the presence of God. So who does God reveal himself to be in seasons of doubt? He reveals himself to be the one crying out alongside us in the silence of our doubt. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The revelation doesn't end there, though. Jesus didn't only hang from a cross. He also died and was buried, and he also resurrected from the grave. The overwhelming circumstances of his doubt were defeated. And I'd like to say that the overwhelming circumstances of your doubt and my doubt have been defeated in Jesus Christ as well. 
So how do we respond to a message like this? When Elijah met God in the silence of his doubt, God asked him the question, Elijah, what are you doing here? May I be so bold as to phrase it this way, Elijah, what are you doing here in isolation? Twice, Elijah said, I am alone. His doubt had left him nearsighted, as if he was the only prophet of God remaining, which was far from the truth. He felt as if he was the only human being stuck in doubt, and he isolated himself. Yet God met him in his doubt and asked him the question, what are you doing here, Elijah? I have 7,000 faithful people waiting for you. See, such an invitation is profound because what it entails is that there is not a dichotomy between faithfulness and doubt. So if you feel like you're stuck in doubt, isolating, isolated from the world, God's calling you to enter back into a faithful community where you can express your doubt before God to one another. But consequently, God is also calling us as the people of God to welcome and embrace one another, to embrace our shame and our doubt, to encourage one another, to be mutually uplifting, to be the 7,000 faithful. Whether you find yourself to be in the shoes of Elijah today or in the shoes of the 7,000, I believe God is calling all of us into fellowship with the one who's crying out alongside us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, go in the love of the God who is able. The grace of Jesus Christ who overcame our doubt and death. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who continually reminds us of our fellowship with God. Go with God.